now you're going to hear what is, I think, one of the best investment stories that I've come across. I, you, you all know that I read a ton about investing and real estate and everything, and this is this is right up there. Um, so uh, we're going to jump right in, and uh, I want to welcome out to the stage my friend Simon Wagner of Granite Oak. Okay, so Simon's a pretty humble guy, and so it took me a while to get what I'm, uh, I'm going to tell you in a moment out of him, uh, and it actually, I think, started at a conversation last year at Reconvene, is yeah, probably the first, right. Yeah. right? We were at the Jonathan Club, and we start talking, and I, he tells me he's here from Ireland, and I'm, I'm uh, you know, I'm obviously incredibly flattered that you're, you've come all this way, and I start asking you, as I often do, what part of the business are you in, and you start to tell me the story, and like the longer the story goes on, the more jaw-dropping it is. So, uh, so, let, so, let's, so let me just start by saying that Simon and his team at Granite Oak uh, have compounded somewhat less than a million dollars into a portfolio worth $250 million uh, over the course of a little bit more than 10 years, which is uh, 50%, north of 50% IRR for more than a decade. <laughs> Turning Simon, and we're going to hear about, about his upbringing, which is uh, modest, I think is a fair way to describe it, uh, into one of the largest private landowners in Ireland. Um, so let's, let's jump right into how this, how this happened, and I think... Uh, People are gonna. People are just gonna be blown away the same way I was. So, tell us where you're from and uh, and what it was like growing up. Um, well, so I uh, was born and raised in Germany, uh, in the western part, uh, very close to the Iron Curtain, so sort of the uh, end of the known world at that time, uh, back in the 1980s. You know, because you just you couldn't go to the other side. Um, very small town, 800 people agricultural uh, background, not me personally, but sort of the, the region where I grew up in. I um, guess uh, no one in my family had completed 12 years of schooling before, and... Um, I think you told me that uh, everyone's greatest ambition was to work at the car factory, is that yeah, right? Yeah, pretty much the, the biggest business in the region is uh, BMW, and the, uh, let's call it the aspirational job would have been to stand on the assembly line, and you know, that's, I mean, those are good jobs, right? And um, those, that would have been what most people wanted to do, and the really successful ones managed to do it, yeah. So, okay, so that's the kind of the milieu that you, that you, yeah. that you find, so, so how do you go from there to here? What was, what was the first step? Well, so in, uh, on the continent in Europe, in school, a big deal is foreign languages. Uh, I had Latin as my first one, English as my second. I was failing both and um, couldn't go anywhere to learn Latin, but, you know, English, you can go somewhere. And so I decided, look, I'll decamp to the United States um, and learn English. Um, so you did, like, a school year abroad? That's right, yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, but things got more interesting once you got there. Yeah, I, uh, I was lucky to be placed with a family in Virginia Beach, uh, Virginia, and uh, got along with them really well, uh, enjoyed school. It was you know, very, uh, a, a very positive environment as, well, maybe you guys don't know because you are from here, but the, uh, the, uh, uh, the nurturing environment that you guys grew up with is not something that I was used to. I really liked it and uh, 
figured out a way to stay and graduate from high school. Um, after a lot of trials and tribulations uh, and false starts, um, my uh, foster family, as they call them, and I figured out the easiest way is that they just adopt me. So that's that's what we did. Okay, so you so you you work your way over to Virginia Beach, Virginia, yeah. get yourself adopted that's so right, you can yeah. stay in the United States. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, and, and then you, you get into college. Where'd you go to school again? Uh, University of Virginia. Yeah. Okay, so um, was it at Virginia that you were exposed to finance for the first time? Um, I guess. Look, uh, like most people, my first exposure was when I was a child and bought my first bond when I was eight years old, you know, so. That's uh, not that <laughs> usual. So, yeah, and <laughs> I just, I, I remember, you know, uh, it was yeah, whenever I bought it, I, know, I was eight, when I got it back, I was nine, and I made $100 or so of interest, and I was like, wow, this is more money than I got all year from everyone, and I had to do nothing for that, right, so. <clears throat> so that was uh, the, you know, that the was beginning sort of the of eye-opening moment, yeah, if you will, yeah. The beginning of a capital allocation. Yeah, exactly. Career. Okay, so, so um, okay, so you, 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 so by the time you got to Virginia, then you were yeah. confident that you didn't want to go into. Finance. Oh yeah, for sure. Okay. I mean, that was one of the big motivations of going there. They have a good undergraduate business school, and so. That's okay, and then um, uh, and remind us what year this is. This is this is uh, two thousand and one to two thousand and six. Okay, so for all of us, some of the. All of us older people remember that this yeah. was like the boom leading up to what became the GFC. Uh, Simon is making his way to Wall Street in 2006, seven. That's right, six. Okay, yeah. like right at the absolute peak. And what were you doing there on Wall Street? So I was a mortgage-backed securities trader on a, <laughs> yeah, on a on a prop trading desk at Morgan Stanley, which was, you know, the really really hard, cool, hot seat for you know up-and-coming young hotshots to take, right? So, yeah. And for, for those of you who, who are a little younger, like, that was the white heart, white hot center of what became the, you know, nuclear explosion that destroyed the world economy a year or so later. So, uh, yeah. so, so, so you're involved in, um, in, in, in uh, trading these things and analyzing them, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. So uh, prop trading desk, uh, which isn't something that, really exist anymore on Wall Street was essentially an internal hedge fund, right? You would use the bank balance sheet to make directional or whatever bets uh, with, with that capital, as if you were at a hedge fund, but you had LIBOR plus zero funding. So it was pretty <laughs> and, good. And the reason that this no longer exists on Wall Street is because... <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the, one, uh, one of the reasons is the group that I was in uh, uh, blew up very spectacularly, uh, featured in many popular movies uh, and books and so on, and almost sunk the entirety of Morgan Stanley uh, within 12 months of my arrival. Not that I had anything to do with it, right? <laughs> just to be clear here, so, uh, you know. But they lost uh, just shy of $10 billion in 2007, yeah. Okay, so, and your group, which had been relatively large, gets sort of like winnowed away, right? Yeah, that's right. There was something, 80-some people in there, and within 18 months, uh, there were eight. And then, you know, there were four, and then at some point, that was me, so. Okay, so you're like, you come in, the place spectacularly melts down. Yeah. Everyone's gone. Pretty much. But you are familiar with these financial instruments that you all had been trading. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And so talk to us about what happened to the pricing of those things and the opportunity that you saw as a result. Well, so um, most of my job at that time was to manage the portfolio down. The, the group had about $100 billion of balance sheet. I was transferred to London at the time. The, the London balance sheet was a 
a part of that, and then they kept dumping more and more other bad risk in. Anyhow, along the way, you learn a great deal about these instruments, and sort of around 2010 or so, I was still there, uh, pricing just started to bottom, and uh, finding its foot, so to speak, and um, by the time I left in 2012, the bottom of the capital structure, as they call it, uh, or that the bottom pieces would have gone from you know trading at five cents, ten cents to maybe twenty cents, twenty five. So, but cents. these things had been—they had been a dollar. Oh yeah. Th yeah then they went right. down yeah, yeah, to yeah, five exactly. cents, yeah. and now they've started to sort of slowly that's right. recover. That's right. And you see an opportunity. Yeah, that's right. So, and that was all at the uh, let's call it institutional capital size level, right? Like you had uh, big hedge funds out of the United States, but also in Europe, starting to buy these, allocating capital towards these. Um, but when I left, what, what I noticed is that the, the small pieces that were floating around, especially in sort of the European secondary bank market, hadn't started picking up, right? Because when you, you call Morgan Stanley, you call <laughs> Goldman Sachs, the trading desk, and you want to sell a few million dollars worth of these bonds at 10 cents, you know, it's, it's already not a lot, right? It's 200, 300 grands. Um, but if you call them and you want to sell $50,000 at 5 cents, that's $2,500. They just won't deal with you. I mean, it's not worth their time, right? So those things were stuck, and uh, I basically started buying them because I, I knew this stuff, right? And um, I didn't have a lot of money, but everything I had and everything I could borrow and everything I could get from anyone, I used to buy these things, yeah. Okay, so you're convicted at a time no one else is yeah. about this these little junk, basically. Yeah, exactly. But exactly. it's not junk. But well, I didn't think it was totally dumb, <laughs> but you know, some of it was. Some of it was. Not all of it, though, right? So. Okay, so you uh, beg, borrow, and steal every single dollar that you can get yeah, to, that's right. to, to load up on this stuff. That's right. And, uh, and what starts to happen? Well, I guess, uh, mind you, this is a relatively short window, um, as I was between jobs. Um, but nothing happens right away, by the way, right? You buy this, stick it in sit on it and then over time though you know those things actually not all of them but you know some of them then pay off at par right and if you go from five cents to par you make 20 times your money uh, and that doesn't happen to happen very often before it really starts you know being a lot of money I guess and I want to okay so we, we're you're 20xing your, your personal yeah, capital right like right, you've, yeah. you've got all in and you on this opportunity that no, right, yeah. most people don't see and you're you know you're, you're 20xing your capital okay um, I want to talk because it because it ties into what we're talking about later. Yeah. I want to talk about um, what we were talking about upstairs, which is uh, uh, the asymmetries of risk and reward, because yeah. I think that's a through line through what you've done. Well, I guess you know a lot of these things are uh, like they're bets, right? And there's a probability that when you buy something in these very highly levered capital structures at five cents on the dollar, that's you know ninety times levered sometimes or whatever it may be that you lose all your money, right? It's just a donut. And a lot of people are not comfortable with that, even if on the flip side, you know, it's a 10 or 20x return. And I mean, in my opinion at the time, it was at least a 50-50 shot, right? And if you take 50 10x up or 50, you know, donut, it's a 5x outcome, right? It's a pretty damn good bet to take. But a lot of people just don't like those bets, right? They just don't like donuts and they don't like thinking about losing all their money and, um, I guess I never cared enough about money that I didn't really mind it, right? So that's that's sort of, I mean, it's a kind of an 
Yeah, just well, we're going to come back to that because, I mean, you don't compound uh, less than a million dollars into a $250 million portfolio without taking a bunch of those kind of bets. Yeah, exactly. So we'll, so we'll talk about how that works later on. Okay, so um, so you're, you've left um, your banking seat, your, this, this uh, major, major for you investment that you've put yeah. together is starting to really pay off. Yeah. Um, what do you do next? Well, so I guess I was, you know, trained as a, mortgage bond trader, so I got myself a mortgage bond trading seat uh, with a large uh, New York-based hedge fund. Um, it's not around anymore, but at the time they were uh, quite successful and they needed someone to do this in London, right? So I, I took that job. Um, as it turns out, the market essentially disappeared within months of me starting that job, so you know, there were no more mortgage bonds to trade, really. They changed a bunch of the rules. Uh, it's kind of archaic field, but essentially there was no the banks didn't want to do this anymore because of the capital rule changes. So um, I had a job with nothing really to do. Um, so what'd you do? So I cast around a little bit and said, you know, what do I know? Um, the, the, the core of the mortgage bond trading is sort of figuring out, you know, correlation between assets and structures and so on. That's you know, kind of worthless in normal life. But I knew a little bit about real estate lending because ultimately what goes into these things is, uh, our loans, right, secured on real estate. And so after a few false starts, I set up a mortgage lending business, commercial mortgage lending business uh, focused on Ireland, which uh, I'm sure you're all familiar with, is a small European country, uh, sort of out uh, almost in the Atlantic Ocean, um, English speaking, growing population, uh, very friendly towards foreigners, I'm you know, a foreigner there. Um, and got extremely uh, badly hurt during the financial crisis. Uh, they had about 16, 17 banks, just an example, right, uh, that were doing commercial mortgage lending in 2005. By 2010, there were two left. Uh, everyone else or all the others had either gone bust or left the market. Those two were nationalized, and you know, nationalized banks don't really do anything, so um, there was no capital available for lending. And what had happened during that time as well is that uh, a lot of the bad loans or the owners of the real estate, you know, that are underwater massively, their loans sort of sat in a bank that went bust. Nothing to worry about, right? Like, bank doesn't do anything once it's bust. Then they went to the, to NAMA, which is the National Mortgage Administration, which is sort of the Irish, or was the Irish bad bank. Again, government bureaucracy, and they're really nice people, just to be clear. But they don't sort of, you know, punish borrowers, right? And then all of those loans eventually were sold to largely US PE hedge funds, right? The big, big names that you're all familiar with, Cerberus, Apollo, whatnot. Well, um, those guys aren't in the business of sitting around doing nothing. So there was all of a sudden, this is sort of 2012-13, there was a lot of movement in the market where uh, borrowers that had been more or less hanging on for dear life but without a lot of pressure all of a sudden got a lot of pressure on them and needed to figure out how to resolve these situations. And I guess that was sort of my cue on coming in and trying to do something about that. So I want to, I also want to say, I mean, so that obviously the debt market is screwed up. Oh yeah, totally. Know, completely yeah. screwed up. Yeah. But also, crucially, and I think a part of the reason that we're um, going in depth into this is because I believe that there are some parallels to the situation that we may find ourselves in over the next couple of years. There's also, a lot of the developers are, are have have 
tarnish their reputations, right, as a result of... Yeah. The, the, I mean, the market structure there uh, prior to the financial crisis was, uh, I mean, they had some, you know, life insurance owners and so on of real estate, but a lot of it was individuals uh, that owned uh, and developed real estate, and they were very, very highly levered, right? And uh, it, it sort of doesn't matter how much money, how many assets you have. If you're 90% levered, even if you're worth a billion, a 10% drawdown makes it zero, right? And that's essentially what happened, right? Which then meant pretty much anyone with a long history, not everyone, but 90 plus percent of the entire industry uh, wiped um, and defaulted on the loans, right? Which then meant coming out of it, um, they really couldn't access those banks anymore, right? Because those two remaining banks, you almost guaranteed to have burned either one or in most cases, both of them with your you know, historic bad debts. And so a bank won't turn around and say, well, you know, we just lost $100 million because of you know, business we've done with you. Here you go, there's another 10, right? That just doesn't happen, right? So. Okay, so you're, you're effectively, you're, there's, from, a, from a capital markets perspective, it's almost like a wasteland. You've got, yeah. you've got, you've got burn no, no, borrowers. It was a wasteland. Wait, burn borrowers, no one's providing debt. That's right. Yeah. Um, and you see then an opportunity for capital to flow in there and make yeah, interesting returns. Right. So what did you do? So um, I, uh, I found two much older experienced guys uh, on the ground in Ireland and uh, we set up a, a commercial mortgage lending business together. Um, the, the hedge fund that I was working with uh, put in some money. I raised a whole bunch of money on top of that. Um, set up back leverage lines with Deutsche Bank, Morgan Stanley and so on and put a few hundred million dollars to work in commercial lending in Ireland essentially. Everyone just heard that, right? Like. Just like, oh, I just set up like a few hundred million <laughs> dollar lending business, just like with some phone calls and a little bit of legwork. Like you, no, no, there was a lot of work way. involved, you know, <laughs> I mean, obviously, right? And, uh, and, and at first I was, you know, chief motivational officer, chief underwriter, chief inspector of properties, chief capital raiser, chief financial officer. I mean, like we built the team up obviously over time and relatively quickly, uh, but yeah, it was a lot of running around and hard And work. tell me, and just, just because I think it's of interest, uh, what what kind of rates were you able to extract from borrowers? So the all-in IRRs we were charging, and mind you, at this time, uh, European rates were zero or about to dip negative, right? Um, which like, you guys didn't have over here, but we, it's kind of bonkers. But anyhow, it wasn't long ago. Uh, we were getting double-digit rates. You're getting double-digit yeah. rates in a, in a world where the baseline rate is zero, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. just incredibly attractive lending yeah. business. That's okay. right. but, um, but you don't own it. That's right, yeah, so uh, spun this up, uh, you know, poured my heart into it for a couple of years, uh, and uh, then at some point I kind of figured out, you know, the, the, the way this partnership agreement is structured, I'm never gonna make any money on this, and uh, I, I didn't, right? Uh, I mean, I got paid a salary and it wasn't bad, and like I learned a shitload, uh, but in terms of actually, uh, you know, raising, or building a business with several hundred million of capital in it, and then, you know, getting a donut, that was, um, you know, not That's a, an unpleasant experience. Yeah, it wasn't great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so. Okay, so so you you realize at that point that you got to do something that you actually own. That's right. And but you chose interestingly to 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 not do it on the debt side. Yeah, I mean, so two things, right? On the debt side, you just have to have a lot of capital. Um, you can't really start lending with five million bucks and be taken seriously, right? I mean, you do one deal and then you never do another one. Um, so that doesn't really work. And the other was that you know people were borrowing at what really was extortionate rates from from the business that I set up. 
but they were still making more money than we did, right? Otherwise, they wouldn't have done it. Not, not everyone did, but on balance, these people were not idiots, right? So I was like, well, let me look at what they're doing. And um, so uh, essentially, we started, or I started doing the same thing, which is to go and take properties that were in some form of default with some either PE owner or the government bad bank or whatever it may have been, right? And, um, and essentially looked at those deals and then ended up buying them, yeah. So just to, just to reiterate, if you got lenders, or excuse me, borrowers borrowing at 10, 12%, obviously it's because the returns to the equity, they, they, at least they expect much higher. To be much that, higher. Yeah. So it's like, hey, <laughs> time to get on the equity side. Yeah. Um, okay, and, you, and you've got your bankroll, which is this capital that you had from, from your original bond trade yeah, exactly. that we talked like, about. This is a few years later, right? And at that point, some of them are starting to come in, essentially, yeah. Uh, okay, so let's talk about that first deal. Well, so, I mean, look, I looked at tons and tons, but the, the first one that, that ended up being a successful purchase, uh, not, not, not in all aspects than a successful deal, but it, it was a fine deal, but uh, it was one that we looked, or I looked at uh, in June of uh, 2014. It was an interesting deal in the sense that the, the, it was a commercial, it was the only commercial property we have ever bought, but it was a commercial property in a city center location with the anchor being the largest grocery store chain and uh, at, had a what was called back then a historic upward only lease, meaning uh, every five years the rent would be reviewed, but it could only go up, it could never go down. And had at that point 15 years remaining on it. So there was a lot of warts around that. Some of the other tenants weren't paying, but I figured, look, it's an interesting deal. We didn't win the deal in June. But uh, it was uh, three, four days before Christmas that year that the, uh, the guy or the organization that won the deal uh, couldn't close on it and it fell out a bit. And the bank that was underlying this, uh, that had to get it off their books, wanted to get it off the books before the year end. Um, and because we'd known the deal, we were able to jump in on it and essentially uh, ink the deal in I don't know, eight, nine days over Christmas, which, Again, in, in the US, you guys aren't as lazy as we are in Europe, but like, you know, <laughs> Christmas, like nothing Shuts happens. Down. And, I mean, literally. Like, People look at you like you're right, crazy. Like they, they think you're absolutely insane to be doing anything, right? Um, I remember I was, uh, I was in a ski town uh, during that time and I was trying to find someone with a printer. And I'd walk into business and they'd be like, no, we don't have a printer. Why are you printing now? Like, this is it's Christmas. Go back home, you know? Be with your family. Like, weirdo, get out of here, you know? So, uh, if, found a, a lady on a bus stop who was kind enough to take me to her apartment and let me print them. And like, it's, I, you know, you do what you gotta do. It was literally New Year's Eve at 9 p.m. or something like that, that, that I signed it and, this, and there was a New Year's Eve party in her apartment. They're all like, who's this guy? So, uh, so, yeah. so, yeah, anyhow, that was the first purchase, yeah. Okay, so, so, so that was a, that was a commercial property, which I think we would call retail, basically. Yeah, exactly. Okay, exactly. Um, but you have major you, you made your career really doing uh, more more like industrial deals, right? Yeah, exactly. The the I mean, retail was fine. We did that. Uh, we still own the building actually to this day, and the, the, the tenants are paying, and it's wonderful. Um, but then what I discovered or what we discovered is that um, you could get similar yields on um, industrial or a uh, rundown industrial, former industrial, decrepit, whatever, but ultimately similar, similar yields, but you would get a free option 
um, that one day maybe those would become uh, development land, uh, which would lead to much higher you know, density use and much higher value use. And that was not being priced in whatsoever uh, at that time. Um, but still isn't much actually, but yeah. So talk to us about that second deal, which I believe was a, 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 a derelict, uh, yes, yes. A, a derelict yeah. industrial Good park. Good Moses says, I never can say that word. Um, so yeah, it was a really run down uh, factory building in a um, up and coming area, like using, I only know New York City in, in the States, but sort of like, think of Bushwick in, in, uh, in Brooklyn. Uh, up and coming area, really run down building, something that could be sort of a, Batman movie sort of backdrop kind of thing. Um, we bought this relatively cheaply, uh, probably in terms of the land value, uh, under what the land value in that reg region of town was by about 30, 40% already. And then uh, what we did is we took it through the uh, like zoning board equivalent um, and managed to get what was an industrial zoning converted into a student housing project. And the, um, the key in that was that it was employment generating, right? In student housing, you still need a lot of people and somehow we convinced the planning board that that was fine. The, the more interesting element of this is that because I had been you know, a lender sort of all my career, one of the competitive advantages, and, and I had no baggage, right, no history, one of the competitive advantages in pretty much all the deals that we've done was that I was able to convince lenders to lend me money which most other people didn't at the time. And I was fairly good at it, right? I knew how to talk the talk, present stuff, execute it. You know, people liked it, right? So I was pretty cocky about it. Um, on this one, uh, so we bought this uh, for 1.7 million. Um, and a year later, we, I convinced a lender, not a bank, an alternative at this point, to lend us two and a half million. So more than getting our cash back out, uh, even though we hadn't had the planning board approval at that point. I felt really good, right? And uh, they wanted to do an inspection, and I said, "Well, it's a pile of dung. I mean, you can look at it, but you know, whatever. It's nothing to see, right?" So we show up on this thing, and we didn't have security on it because it, it is just a pile of rubble, basically, right? Um, we show up and try to open the door. Key doesn't work. So one of my guys goes to the car, gets an angle grinder. This is beyond my sort of ability to deal with, right? Gets an angle grinder, saws off the, the back of the door, kicks it in, and uh, we go in. It's kind of dark, you can't really see. And all of a sudden we, and the two guys from the lender are with us, right? So there's four or five of us standing there in the hallway, kind of looking in, can't really see what's going on. And all of a sudden two guys jump out and take a swing with, I guess, a tire iron or something like that. And so we beat a hasty retreat back out and call the cops. And before the cop shop, you can see them scaling out the back, you know, over one of the fences. And anyhow, it turns out that there was a full-blown meth lab operation set up in there um, that, you know, I hadn't bothered to check because, well, why would we put security on, you know, a piece of shit property, really, right? But, yeah, uh, the lenders were not impressed, and uh, <laughs> they ended up still doing the deal, but it took a lot of convincing that this was actually the future, you know, of the city and this location. Uh, so. Student but, housing, you know, security is a big <laughs> deal, right? So, but you, but uh, but just to go back to the numbers on this one, and I think well, I want to connect it back to what we were talking about yeah. the bonds. You bought this thing for a million seven. Yeah. And uh, you know, I think you told me that if things had gone bad, really bad, what what was the downside from your perspective? I'd say you probably would have been able to sell it as a you know industrial 
redevelopment for a last mile delivery warehouse for about a million the land, right? Because there's some cost to removing what was on there. Yeah. So that's your downside. That's right. But then what your up your ultimate upside on this was We sold it for just shy of eight million, yeah. Um, after you know taking all the money out uh, as well. So the IR is sort of through the roof, right? Um, and this again is a good example why a lot of people just didn't like doing those bets. I mean this was it wasn't exactly on the market, but you know, if you've been in and around this industry for a while, it, it, anyone else could have bought this pretty much. I mean, it wasn't that expensive and uh, it was a pretty straightforward deal in many other ways, but people just don't like losing money, you know, so. So uh, through that deal and then obviously a series of subsequent deals, yeah. you're, you're compounding that original capital. Yeah. To the present day, we're talking 250 million. Roughly, yeah. Roughly, yeah. with a little bit of leverage on it, but yeah, not, not, not a ton, but not a bit, yeah. And, um, and you haven't, to this point, taken outside capital. No, we have not. No. Yeah, okay. no. um, but you see an opportunity at this point. Yeah, so I guess um, what, so the, the, take a step back, right? So Ireland, great financial crisis we already covered. The, uh, there's basically no financing the, uh, the people who know how to run real estate, you know, a lot of them went bankrupt, sort of lost the spirit. Um, nothing happens basically from 2009 to 2019. You have a decade of nothing getting built, and I mean nothing getting built. Uh, while it is the only Western European country where the domestic population is growing, I mean, people still, you know, get married, have kids, and which is what you guys all consider normal, but the rest of Europe just doesn't do anymore. And, uh, and you have immigration on top of it, right? You have a lot of foreign direct investment coming in, pretty much all the US, I mean, this big tech giants that you all you know, have on the West Coast here. When they come to Europe, they set up uh, an office there. There's a, a very attractive tax regime in Ireland. And uh, again, it's a very welcoming country towards foreigners. And it's a great place to then hire staff from all over Europe to service the rest of Europe, right? So you have immigration, both in tech and pharmaceuticals, by the way. Uh, you have domestic population growth and you have nothing being built. And I mean nothing. No hotels, no industrial, no housing. So today you have a situation in the country where you have, I mean, this is a small country, right? You have five million people, two million households and a shortage of accommodation of about 250,000 units. So it's a, it's, a, it's a real, real problem. It is the only political topic. Um, I mean partially that is also because it's a neutral country without an army that doesn't get sort of entangled in anything, so they don't have the distraction elements that you know, other countries have. But it is the biggest political topic. It is the, a real crisis on the ground for people, but it's obviously for people in our industry a, a real opportunity. Um, that's just on housing, right? Um, the same is the case for industrial. There's a massive shortage, which was compounded by Brexit because Ireland was sort of serviced as an adjunct of the much bigger UK economy. That link is not as fluid anymore, so you need more local warehousing. Uh, tourism is, is booming across Europe. Um, again, Ireland's a great place to visit. I highly recommend it for everyone. Uh, it's easy doable for a short trip because you can pass US immigration in Dublin and then you have a domestic flight back home. Um, very few hotel beds have been built in, in the last decade. So there's an enormous opportunity to do really anything in this industry. Um, and uh, that's the opportunity set. On the other hand, we, as Moses mentioned, we bought a lot of Class B industrial with a view of it, uh, well, fixing it up uh, 
doing the tenant work and so on, and those are wonderful properties to own. But the very, very long-term vision was that at some point these things would become rezoned into redevelopment, uh, mostly residential, because of set housing shortage. And we bought a lot of this from sort of 2016 to 2019. We didn't buy anything during the COVID craze because prices just got a bit too, too hot for us. Um, and we expected to sit on this and wait for 10 years and you know, it would be rezoned. Well, lo and behold, everything's been rezoned. So um, we can build about 10% of the annual production of housing needed in the country just on our own estate. That's like, we can invest easily a billion dollars doing that. So we, uh, we're so kind of busy with what we have, you know, but, <laughs> but there's, there's new deals and, and new opportunity coming in. And um, so I've built a team, we have 20 people at this point. Um, you know, they're, they're young, hungry, well, not all young, uh, but they're all hungry and ambitious, and uh, I want to be able to do more stuff uh, with them. So, yeah, so we are, uh, we are in fundraising mode, as you say, so. Simon, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Thanks very much.